0: Welcome back
1: to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode is part two of our wrap-up for VRT, and it will discuss the puzzles and mysteries, unresolved questions, and the craft of the story. We do have a brief announcement before we get into it first, though. Uh, another new Patreon episode was released this month. That episode covers the Twilight Zone episode. Will the Real Martian please stand up? Yeah, this is one that Valerie and
0: I did together. It was Valerie's first time ever watching a classic Twilight Zone episode. So it was really a super amount of fun to get a perspective on the Twilight Zone from someone who loves classic Star Trek and other sci-fi but had never seen this. So I highly recommend checking that out. I'm also very excited to finally, tonight, get to talk about the elephant that has been in the studio with us this entire novella. And that is the question of whether VRT is an alien or a human. But before we get there, we want to start by assessing the veracity of his claim to have lived with the free people in the back of beyond for three years after Dr. Marsh's death. So, Brandon, let me just put the question to you. Do you think that VRT found The free people back there, as he keeps telling anyone who will listen.
1: I'm going to say it's my belief that he does not find anything in the back of Beyond. There's two pieces of evidence, I think, in this story that he does. One is in the interrogation scene on 211, where VRT says that in the winter after his assistant died, he came down into the foothills and many of the free people did. As well. That's one piece of evidence. The other is in the St. Anne Journal on April 15th, on page 231, where Dr. Marsh is looking at the remains of the campfire and says he sees hundreds of footprints left by a number of species. Some very small tracks might have been those of human children, but I cannot be sure. This to me, sounds like the shadow children. There's also Dr. Marsh's suspicion that VRT is sleeping with a girl, a camp follower, and there's no evidence of her, but he is certain of it. And that's all evidence for the existence of the free people or abos or shadow children. But I'm really stuck in the mind of VRT, where he is speculating on June 4th in the St. Anne Journal, that's page 245, 246, and 247, about how the free people lived. And it's all speculation. It's all suppositions. And he's thinking about the Hill people and the Marshmen and coming up with the different sorts of identities for these people, where it's clear to me at this point, though he may be pretending to be Dr. Marsh, and he may be trying to maintain that voice, it's clear to me that his statements early on, that he has seen them and sees them all around. That VRT, this is what VRT sees, is patently untrue, because he is stuck speculating about all of them and relying on the same types of stories that Dr. Marsh was relying on to get his information. And for me, the nail in the coffin is him scrabbling around in the dirt, looking for eoliths, looking for arrowheads, and evidence of civilization of any type of civilization up in the hills. And for me, it just reads as though this is a creation that VRT needs to maintain his sanity as he's potentially isolated in the wilderness for three years. Glenn, what are your beliefs and thoughts on this?
0: Well, I'm I'm, I'm skeptical of the way that you're using the St. Anne Journal as evidence to get at this question, because the question is about stuff that happened after he stopped writing in the St. Anne Journal. The claim that he makes is that after Dr. Marsh died, or really after VRT died, after he stopped writing in the journal, that's when he encountered free people and he lived with them in the wilderness for a number of years in their migratory patterns. So we don't get anything in the journal that would indicate that this has happened. That's all after the fact. The only way that we can evaluate the claim is by the statements that he actually is making in either the prison diary or uh, on the interrogation tapes. And th- there is one statement that you, you left out, though, that I think that is important, because it is, it is another place where he talks about his experience with the free people after he has found them, after Dr. Marsh has died, which is that he he says that he knows about the use of beards among the free people because he has lived among the free people. And he knows that what beards are mostly for is to protect your neck from the teeth of other adult male free people. To me, that is one of piece of evidence that we can use. Uh, the other is this bit of the interrogation in which he he says that no, in winter, we, I, after my assistant died, came down into the foothills. Many of the free people did as well, which you already, which you already mentioned. Something that is immediately problematic with that statement, though, is that the assistant died before they ever were out there in the winter. The the assistant was never out in the back of beyond in a winter. The assistant died in April here. So this is not a true statement at all. It is a lie on the face of it. And, and, and really is probably one of the things that the officer reviewing this case noticed and said, there is a problem with this person's account, the consistency of this person's account. But to, to get to really what, what is my sense of this, did VRT actually meet up with free people, whether these are French people who decided they didn't want to live in a civilization that was going to exploit and subjugate them, Whether these are shape-shifting aliens or some other type of thing entirely, I think not. I don't actually think that he met any sentient creature out here in the back of BEYOND. I do think, though, that he is encountering animals, uh, big animals in particular, and is anthropomorphizing them in some way and thinking about them as the free people. And I think, I suspect anyway, that this bit about the beards is reminiscent of some encounter he had with a tire tiger or a ghoul bear or some other wild creature that almost bit his throat, but didn't only because he's grown this huge beard. And I really feel that this is one of the places where we get the blurring of these two themes, these themes of freedom and also uh, the distinction between animal and human wrapped up together, that the free people for him are actually these wild animals, or, or flip that around, that these wild animals, tire tigers, ghoul bears, tick deers, these are the free people because they are roaming around out here in the back of beyond without being subjugated, without being exploited, without being curtailed uh, in any way. That's my sense of it, that he met
1: animals. And this this is no more evident than VRT making the claim that the free people are animals. He says it outright. And it's because Wolf is playing with simile and metaphor that we can say that this whole statement is simile and metaphor. But this is found on page 227 where VRT says, at least half of me is animal. The free people are wonderful. Wonderful as the deer are, or the birds, or the tire tiger, as I have seen her, head up, loping as a lilac shadow on the path of her prey. But they are animals. And he says they are animals. And then he clarifies about his own face When he returns to that statement, he says, it is an animal's mask, I see. So he does something to turn that into a metaphor. I think that's a great reading of the free people, Glenn. I I had not considered that. I really thought that that there was still some possibility that there were French people living out in the woods, which may be the case. But I think this is probably a much stronger reading, that he desires to be an animal because he views them as more free than he can ever be.
0: Well, let's just use this to springboard into the, the second question. We knew it, we knew that's what this would do is why we've ordered them the way that we have. But this second puzzle, the second mystery that we really want to get to is the question of of what is VRT, right? Is he human? Is he abo? Is he animal or, some, or something else entirely? What is he? But also, what does he think he is? Because they might not be The same thing. This passage that you've just read is a huge piece of evidence here. What what are what are your other thoughts about this, Brandon?
1: Well, I think VRT is human. This bit about the hands, and and I know we have a question about that coming up really soon, is to me another bit of war propaganda. He has inherited something from his father, something of his father's arthritis or neurological disorder that cripples the hands. And I think VRT has created a fantasy world from the time he's been a child in order to live with the promise of a better place, a better heritage. We see his father saying he is descended from the East Wind, who was the first people to make, the first person to make peace with the French settlers when they arrived. We know East Wind is, some, is, is something of an enemy in a story by John V. Marsh. And and that the hero of that story is related to them, but still views them as despicable, as disgusting, as, as somebody who could speak of vivisecting a woman to learn more about them. And at the end of that story, we see them recognizing that they are one in some way. And to me, that reads as VRT wanting these stories to be true, needing these stories to be true, to make sense of his life, and recognizing who his parents are, but wishing there was a way for all this to be true, and for him to be heroic and not like his father. I think VRT is a human. I think Trenchard is a fraud. But I think VRT thinks, at least for a little while until he's in prison, that he is descendant of these free people, that he is a half-Abo, and that is a belief he needs In order to live.
0: You've just really pointed out that in some ways this is a trick question, or at least the second half of it is a trick question, the what does VRT think he is? Because he changes his mind in this story. That seems very clear. There's evidence that he thinks that the free people are a biologically distinct sentient species, or a sentient species that is biologically distinct from humans, when he says things like, I've never understood how one of the free people could bear a child to my father, right? How can my father and mother have actually procreated their members of different species? In the St. Ann Journal, after Dr. Marsh dies, when VRT takes it over, he is still thinking about the free people uh, as sentient people who lived on this planet before men came to St. Anne from Earth. But then we get all of these places where VRT is thinking of the free people as having this animal physiology. There's the, the passage that you just read. It's a beautiful bit of writing. But there's also this passage where he says, we saw a great many people almost every day, many animals and birds, trees that were alive, just as you and I have, traveling. And this is also where he talks about elk men and and also talks about the shadow children riding up in the bubbles and the foam from the springs. And we also do get him uh, in two different places anthropomorphizing trees. One of them is also wrapped up in in the passages that I just read, but there's another one that occurs in the description of the death of Dr. Marsh. Uh, and this is where he writes in the St. Anne Journal. He says, downstream a long way, a big tree stood grasping the rock with water at his feet and thrust out a root to catch my friend. Right here, the, the tree is given the, the, uh, a gendered pronoun of a human and is given the agency of thrusting out a root to catch the body of Dr. Marsh. These are three different things, or at least two different things that VRT has thought the free people are in the course of this story. Where he ends up, right, where we leave him in the prison diary, seems to me to be thinking of the free people as animals. And that, in fact, everything that we have of him thinking that they are not animals, that they are sentient people who are not humans, who are. Biologically distinct from humans, all of that is before he actually spends years out in the wilderness. That that experience seems to have changed him. That he doesn't find humanoids walking around out in the back of beyond. That it is only animals back there. But then to the the question of what does that mean about what does he think he is? I think that this bit about leaves post postulate is him coming to terms with the fact that even the legends about abos are really actually about people who ran away in the aftermath of the war and that he is coming to terms with the fact that he is in fact fully a human and so is his mother and that this story about being half abo and all these stories about the free people and their special characteristics their qualities are things that his mother told him during periods of his childhood when she was taking him away from his father who she didn't want to live with because of alcoholism and abuse, that these are lies, these are stories that she made up to explain away domestic abuse to her kid to alleviate this emotional burden from her child. But these are the things, the fairy tales, the fantasies that he has grasped onto and yearned for once she abandoned him.
1: I think that is exactly what's happening in this story. And we see even VRT's slipping into anthropomorphizing animals or finding equal footing with them during the St. Anne Journal, where he says, we have behaved like explorers today. Marched all day. On our right, the river roars through the walls of stone ahead of us. The mountains lift their blue wall. I will follow the river in. I know it rises in their heart. This is ostensibly about the two mules he's still with. And so you see how he's the loneliness of being out, the, the the effects of being out there on his own, only having animals as companions, drives him to have to think of them as some sort of equal. This leaves us with a real sense of, of tragedy of whatever happens to the cat. And I know we're going to get to that section in a little bit, but this is the first instance of him spending time. He takes about five days to lure this cat into camp and befriend it and spends a lot of time with it.
0: We've both come down pretty hard on the side that VRT is a human being and even seems to be recognizing that by the time he's incarcerated here in the Citadel in Port Mimison. But this question is entirely separate from the matter of whether or not there is or or ever was a sentient species, an indigenous sentient species on St. Anne? That is a question that we're actually going to take up in our final wrap-up episode, because we'll want to bring in evidence from all three novellas when we answer that question. So I think now's a good time to move into our our third puzzle here. This is a a pretty slight question, but it is something that really bothered me uh, while reading VRT. And it's the question, why does VRT decide to become Dr. Marsh? Why does he steal Dr. Marsh's identity rather than just keep his own identity and, and go free or invent some other identity? What is he trying to accomplish by stealing the identity of Dr.
1: Marsh? I think the answer is actually very simple. VRT wants to be Dr. Marsh, and I think he Believes he can be a better version of him in some way. He thinks Dr. Marsh has some real flaws as an anthropologist, as every good 15 to 17 year old believes of all of their <laughs> teachers um, <laughs> that they can do better. And this is, you know, something of the apprentice master relationship in general. There's real hubris in VRT's part. He's read three textbooks and he's mastered the field. And That's the dynamic we see in the story between VRT and Dr. Marsh. So I think that's why he takes his identity, because he believes he can become an anthropologist without having to do the work. He's already better than most people in the field. I think it also has to do with uh, a bit of reverence and honor. To me, the imagery of the burial of Dr. Marsh in VRT the cat at its feet, the burial cave, all of this is reminiscent of the imagery of the gorge of thunder always. And so I feel that image is kind of doing double duty, that we're seeing VRT really honor Dr. Marsh as a priest of of his own kind that VRT follows and needs to learn how to be like. And so that's why I think he decides to become Dr. Marsh. I think he always needs a master. Maybe VRT is a type of natural slave. And though his master is dead, he needs his ghost with him.
0: I don't think that's wrong in thinking about this question. I I, I was maybe more interested in the practicalities of it. That there there are two places where VRT makes this choice to be Dr. Marsh. And the first is in the moments or days at least immediately after his death, when he decides to continue the journal, the St. Anne journal in the persona of Dr. Marsh. I think that has to be completely rooted in the drives that you're pointing to. I have more of a cynical reading of the second time when he decides he wants to be Dr. Marsh, and in part because he gives up on being Dr. Marsh after writing four entries in that journal, he stops writing in that journal, three years later, after living in the back of beyond, after living in the Tempest Mountains, he comes back to civilization and claims to be Dr. Marsh. I think at that moment that what he's looking for is access to Dr. Marsh's money, his bank account, the, the money that he has from Columbia to carry out this expedition, and Dr. Marsh's social prestige, that this is the way that he doesn't have to go back to being servile or being lesser than in his society, that it is really an identity theft in the the true sense of it, and that he wants... it, it. Really, it's the talented Mr. Ripley, right?
1: Absolutely. I think that is a piece of what's going on here, is that he needs to return to civilization because he's lost. He's lost maybe even his own identity. He has actually shed his identity as VRT. I think it's less talented Mr. Ripley which is about that level of identity theft. Uh, but this, and there, there is in The Talented Mr. Ripley, a level of self-loathing that does not allow Tom Ripley to be himself, that he would rather be anybody other than himself. The question is, if we're using that same kind of psychological dynamic to explain VRT's actions, who else could he have pretended to to be. There's only one option, which is Dr. Marsh. He can't go back to being himself. I think VRT could never return to being himself under any circumstances. And what we're witnessing in the prison in the prison diary is that mask slipping and the fear that he is going to have to confront him being himself. So I, I, I don't know. I think you're I think you're right there, but I think it's a little more tragic to than it is a cynical attitude I have towards it.
0: I don't think the readings are incompatible. In fact, I think both things are are probably true. And we're going to take this up more in our next episode when we get into the meta-textual question about what is a story by John V. Marsh and what we can learn from that, how it relates to the other two novellas. I think with that said, we can move on to the the next puzzle that we have here in this story. And this is the the mention of running blood in this story. It is something, it it, it appears in two places. Uh, It's a place, but it's also invoked as an event, but we don't get a real detailed explanation of it. But I think that this is going to be evidence that is going to become important for answering the question of whether or not there ever has actually been a sentient, an indigenous sentient species on St. Anne. I'll go through the two places where we get this. Uh, the first is on page 159 of the 1994 Orb Edition. It's Dr. Hagsmith speaking, and he says, No, not being really human, you see, the abos can't handle any sort of tool. They can pick them up and carry them about, but they can't accomplish anything with them. They're magical animals, if you like, but only animals. That's the test the French are supposed to have applied at the ford called Running Blood. Stopped every man that passed and made him dig a shovel that sentence ends with ellipses. It's not finished here in the text. So we don't know what else Dr. Hacksmith was going to say about this, but he seems to be talking about some kind of interaction, some kind of engagement between the French and an indigenous sentient species uh, that could shapeshift, that could, or at least appear to be human in some way, and that there was real anxiety and concern about that, such that there was an actual program put into place here. The other mention of this is in the prison journal, VRT's prison journal. And this is in the moment when he is writing about being an animal. He writes, I have always known that I do not really speak like others, but only make certain sounds in my mouth. Sounds enough like human speech to pass the running blood ears that hear me, So again, this seems to be a reference to passing some kind of test, some kind of test that you have to pass in order to prove that you're human. And he is saying that he can, that although he's an animal, he can masquerade as a human sufficiently enough to convince the guards at the fort of the running blood. But these are the only two mentions or the only two instances of this in the story So the question really about this is, is the story that Dr. Hagsmith tells, is this a a true historical account, or is this a folktale that VRT also happens to know?
1: So this reads to me as as a way for the French to get free labor, to enforce a certain standard of labor on people who were passing through, on new colonists who were coming in and saying, well... You have to do, we can't tell anymore. There are these people in the hills that look like us. We need to make sure you're a person like us. You have to dig a hole, which is what VRT says in the prison journal, that the the completion of the test was that you dig a hole. So this sounds just like a forced labor camp that is wrapped in a folktale. So much of the early French settlement is wrapped in these types of folktales to cover who knows what. We don't know what happened back then and nobody seems to know and nobody seems to want to remember. It's lost to a history of potentially nuclear war. There's nothing remaining of that past but these folk stories. And this sounds to me like some kind of labor camp that each person had to do their time there in order to achieve maybe digging foundations for a new town or digging a forest or something along those lines. So I think it's a real event, but I also think it's folkish. It's folklorish as well.
0: To me this does not at all sound like some kind of labor camp. This sounds like a boundary. All right. This is a political boundary that people are not allowed to cross. There are sentries and they are checking people's passports, basically. But the the passport in this case is can you use a shovel properly or not? And if you can't, then we know that you don't belong to this community. But I also just have a hard time maybe envisioning what that situation that you're thinking of would be like, that 20 years, 40 years, maybe 50 years after the uh, initial French settlement, that something has happened within within the colonists, that they are now enslaving each other, and they are trying to, to find some kind of rationale for conscripting forced labor to build a town or something like that, as opposed to all just being colonists, all being settlers together on this wide open planet that can easily, that could handle billions of people, let alone the tens of thousands of people who have come on this ship.
1: Yeah, there's a lot I'm puzzled by here. Uh, Labor camp is probably the wrong type of term, but having everybody... Maybe a labor conscription service is something more along the lines of what I'm thinking. We have no idea how many people can fit in these ships, how many people come to settle, whether or not anybody knows each other when they land. So I don't really know. You're absolutely right. There's no evidence of it. But there might be another explanation then for why VRT knows this story, And it's that he does an impression of Dr. Hagsmith. He knows Dr. Hagsmith's stories and he knows the kinds of things he tells. And so it could really just be a folk tale um, because there are a number of questions I think that arise from any reading. The idea that in order that a community might stop people from coming in who can't use a shovel would only indicate the type of thing that that community is trying to achieve And the fact that they need people who can shovel would indicate that it's not maybe the most desirable community to live in. So I don't know. It could be simply as simple as VRT knowing Dr. Hagsmith and his folktales. And that's what comes to mind when he's thinking about passing the test of being human. I don't know, Glenn. That's That's a tough question. I miss Running Blood until you told me we were going to talk about it. It just didn't even come out to me in the text.
0: Well I, well, I think it's going to be hugely important when we talk about whether or not abos are a real thing in the next episode. It's, uh, so we'll look forward to that. I, I think now let, let's just move on to the next question, uh, which is about the use of another important phrase in folktale here, and that is the long dreaming days. This phrase appears in the story that VRT tells when he is pretending to be Doctor Hagsmith, as you just brought up. It is the only place that this phrase appears outside of a story by John V. Marsh. Uh, so, my question for you is: Is this phrase the special prerogative of VRT and his parents, uh, or is this a phrase that is commonly used in the folk tales of Saint Anne? Is this actually a phrase that VRT learned from Doctor Hagsmith? Or is this a phrase that VRT has learned from his mother or his father and is just slipping up here in his guise of Dr. Hacksmith?
1: It sounds like something that would come from his father. It really does. Trentard's sense of the mythic past and his ability to spin a yarn is crucial to his ability to make money as a con artist. So I wonder if VRT isn't slipping a little bit of that style into his imitation of Dr. Hagsmith. However, Dr. Hagsmith is the sole expert on these folk stories about the Abos. He has spent his time on St. Anne in Frenchman's Landing talking to everybody who has a story to tell and characterizes it as collecting falsehoods, basically. He's not looking for the truth. He's looking for falsehoods.
0: I think that you're right, that this is not a phrase that he has from Dr. Hacksmith. I, I also think that this is a phrase that probably he got from his father, because this is a, a, a phrase that, although can be used maybe as a stand-in for once upon a time, it has an element of being mythical or, or historical, that it is talking about uh, a cultural memory of a time that is distinct from now. And that really is very different from the other types of folk tales that we get from Dr. Hacksmith and from other people whom Dr. Marsh interviews, in which none of those stories are really dealing with a time that is other than now, that is other than what, what we might call the, the historical present or the, the recent present. So the, the language, the sense of time is very different in the use of that phrase. And this does sound like the type of phrase that someone would use when he's a con man who is pretending to be the last shaman or the last king of the abos. And he's going to use this stock phrase with, with tourists to fleece them out of their money, but that VRT has taken it seriously on some level. And of course, this will be important when we are talking about the metatextuality or the metatextual question of who wrote a story by John V. Marsh and what it is and what its place in the novel is. Looking ahead to that, again, I think it's time to move into the next question. The question broadly, Brandon, is what's up with the cat? In our last episode, you had suggested something about this cat bite, which may not actually even be a thing that really happened. This may be an an invention by VRT to explain the transition from the legible handwriting to the illegible handwriting. But you're suggesting that if it really did happen, that it is wrapped up in this transference of the identity of Dr. Marsh from the body of Dr. Marsh to the body of VRT, and that that manifests in a story by John V. Marsh when we have something similar happen at the end of that tale, when Sandwalker and Eastwind perhaps swap identities through the drugged saliva of the shadow child. I think there definitely is something to that reading. I do also think that the cat is extraordinarily important for showing us the distinct characters of VRT and Dr. Marsh in their attitudes towards it, where Dr. Marsh yells at it and throws rocks at it to get it to go away. And VRT wants to adopt it, wants to befriend it, wants to treat it like a a person to some degree. That is all very much wrapped up in this theme of animals that we've already highlighted so much. And we talked in our last episode about the significance of the fact that VRT kills this cat, kills his pet, and lays it uh With the corpse of Dr. Marsh when he puts him in this cave, uh, I think there's a a reading that a lot of fans of this book have about the cat, which is a real suspicion that maybe Dr. Marsh wasn't as crazy as I have thought he was that that v r t maybe does have a girlfriend out here in the wilderness, and that girlfriend is the cat who is actually an Abo woman who chooses to take on this guise of a cat when Dr. Marsh is around, but takes on the form of a human or humanoid woman when he is not, that this is VRT's girlfriend. There's that reading that many people have, and there is also then this line where VRT describes the cat as having a pointed snout and round ears, as cats do, but the teeth of a human being. What do you make of that? Do you think that there's any plausibility to, to that reading? Is this cat actually an an abo, a, a shape-shifting alien?
1: That's really not my preferred reading of what is happening here. I, I do think the cat is meant to be an image that reveals identity in some way, that you're absolutely right to say that it shows us the distinct attitudes that these people have Dr. Marsh and VRT have towards the natural world, and that VRT's killing of the cat is somehow symbolic of him taking on Dr. Marsh's identity, and even believing, perhaps in a psychotic way, that he is Dr. Marsh and that Dr. Marsh is the boy, that they actually have swapped identities. I don't think it is the case at all that, VRT has been having sex in the woods with anyone. I think it's something he would have written about in his prison journal and the killing of this would be absolutely horrible and meaningless. It, it just it just doesn't it doesn't quite work for me. And these images that are confused. He says he dreams of women all the time and this imagery of the shadow children and the woman bending over him just sounds like something he would dream about. It doesn't seem like the woman in this instance is the cat that he's dreaming, that he's haunted by this image of the cat's real being, which is that of a woman. It seems more as though the, the flying shadow against the dark and the shadow children have more in common than the woman and the cat.
0: So what you're saying is that sometimes a cat is just a cat... That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> well, I think that that is my preferred reading of the text as well. Uh, but, but we are going to hear from Mark Garamini, who's going to have something else, a kind of different take on the significance here of this cat bite. I look forward to talking to him about that. But that is the final question that we had here in the uh, Puzzles, Mysteries, and Unresolved Questions section. So I think it is time to move on to talking about the craft of this novella. What we really want to do in this part of the discussion is highlight the extent to which wolf is using different genres, and especially the interplay of different genres. And we've, we've identified three broad genres that wolf is using here. The first is is wilderness adventure stories, the second is prison narratives, and then the, the final one is weird fiction. And we're just going to go through these. We're going to catalog some of the places where we see these and talk about the way that Wolf is employing those genres. And then when we're done doing that, we're going to talk about how successful Wolf is at weaving these distinct genres into a unified whole. I'll get us started by talking about the, the wilderness adventure portion of this story. There's a, a long history of this type of story. Some of the oldest bits of human writing are this type of story. travel logs, such as those that Dr. Marsh is recording here date all the way back to antiquity. Herodotus is a great example of this, famous as being the father of history, But in the Greek world, history meant journalism. Herodotus's book is about him traveling around the the ancient world, trying to understand how this massive war that had killed his son had come to be. His book is the log of those stories. And of course, we know that Wolf loves Herodotus. His books about Latro, the soldier series, are essentially Herodotus fan fiction. The Middle Ages are full of this type of thing. That Ibn Battuta, Marco Polo, these are, are books you will have had to have read in college, or uh, perhaps have seen a Netflix TV series about. And of course, there are modern explorers. People know, of course, the journals of Lewis and Clark, who explored the Louisiana Purchase. That's one aspect of wilderness adventure stories. Uh, there also, of course, are, are, are modern authors who write fiction in this vein. Jack London is perhaps the most famous uh, of these. Uh, Of course, he writes stories about the Yukon and Alaska around the year 1900. People know the Call of the Wild, for example. And his motif there is that the the wilderness is extremely dangerous. People die all the time. And of course, Jack London, right, Call of the Wild, Mo- is probably most famous for writing stories in which animals are human protagonists. So that might have a relationship here with what Wolf is doing. And we should point out something that a, a listener brought to our attention very recently on the forum, uh, which is that the, stor- the short story IBEM has a direct relationship to the Jack London story, To Build a Fire, and in fact, may very well be Wolf's play on that Jack London story. So we should think of that as something that is uh, also uh, in play here in VRT. The the last author I want to bring up here is Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway wrote tons of stories about hunting all over the world, but especially about hunting in Africa. Uh, People know his story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro. And then he has this sort of novel, sort of anecdote, uh, called The Green Hills of Africa, which is a, a beautiful book. And there's a real sense in all of these stories that Hemingway longed to be a Victorian explorer, which is something that Dr. Marsh says explicitly here in VRT, uh, but that Hemingway laments that he was born too late for it, just as Dr. Marsh does. Uh, Hemingway also very interested in game as trophies, and he's killing animals for the size of their horns. But Hemingway has genuine empathy for the animals that he kills, and he scolds himself when the animals that he shoots do not die instantly. He regards that as a bad shot and not a clean kill and not as a genuine trophy. Uh, Marsh, as we've talked about, right, has a completely different take on this. Dr. Marsh won't even use the word crying to describe the tears that an animal is shedding, this animal that he killed with a shot that was not clean, that caused this animal suffering uh, and took minutes, tens of minutes, to, to die So those are some of the places where that connects in with VRT. I think it is important that we can see the hallmarks of all three of these traditions in the story of Dr. Marsh's expedition. It's clear that this is a a genre type of literature that Wolf read as a child that really captured his vivid imagination, and that he's now using to think about what the experience of encountering a new planet would be.
1: Yeah, I think it's a fantastic idea to lean on a familiar genre in order to tell a story about what it means to encounter a new world. And these types of boys' adventure stories and travelogues are things that we know Wolf has a great love of. And as we've brought up before, one of the joys of reading Wolf is that he's such a good reader. Looking at what Wolf has written and trying to put together the set list of influencers, you're almost sure to find some great literature there in the background. And I think that any of these books are worth looking into as just what Wolf has in his mind as he's thinking about how does a person write who is writing about encountering a new world? These are great questions for a writer to ask.
0: And this genre in particular really is is drawing on the same Mood and the, the the same emotions, the same yearning for fantasy and, and and another world to go exist in that we encountered in the island of Doctor Death and other stories, but the the second genre that's really at play here is much darker. Is it really an, a bleaker place and is maybe not something that I think we've seen in Wolf before? And that's the genre of the the prison narrative.
1: Prison narratives have a really long history and. I'll start by saying kind of how they've played out in the US, at least. Uh, And then I'll go into a little bit more of their broader history. Uh, But in the US, at least, when we're talking about the prison narrative, it's either typically been autobiographical, or meant to be an instructive or, or moral treatise. A good example of the autobiographical one is the autobiography of Malcolm X. The moral treatise is something like Martin Luther King's Letters from a Birmingham Jail. Could even be something like Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. The genre in American fiction is really meant to shine a light on either the injustice that has been the cause of a just man going to prison, an unjust system, and we need the voice of the person who is being punished unjustly. Or it's shining a light on a situation that caused an otherwise productive member of society to lose their way and that their writing about their experience exposes the corruption of society at large. But I think we intuitively find a certain credibility in the prison narrative. We have a certain built-in sympathy when we encounter that voice of the one who has gone up against a system that we all suspect is just a little bit corrupt and continues to fight from the inside. This is the American love of the underdog. And It really only works. I can't emphasize this enough. It really only works because we all suspect that the system is already a little corrupt. Here are some famous works that were written in prison. These are less the kind of US style of autobiography or moral treatise, though some of these are moral treatises. We have A Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan was written in prison. La Mort d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory was written in prison. The Divine Comedy was written in exile. Don Quixote was started in prison uh, by Cervantes, and The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. All of these works were written in prison. In VRT, the prison narrative functions more as autobiography. I think we are closely engaged with the mind of a character who no longer has a reason to lie to himself about who he is. This mirrors number five's reason for writing his own memoirs. It's an examination of their beliefs, of VRT's beliefs once everything is taken away from him. But that doesn't mean it's also not a moral treatise or, or uh, a commentary on the political system of San but depending on the condition of VRT, his mental state, at times it feels either very self-consciously crafted or stream of consciousness in terms of style. And all of that's to say, I think through this kind of tension we're seeing in the scribblings of a prisoner, VRT has an aspiration to produce something meaningful, even if it's not this prison journal he's keeping. And this is evidenced, I think, in one of his more self-conscious moments. On page 240 of the text, VRT claims that he has let his imagination run freely in some of the past entries. And that a great many books have been written in prison. And immediately, this sets off in my mind the need to compare what he says here with something that the shadow children should say in a story by John V. Marsh. On page 121 of that text, the same book, the 1994 Orb Edition, the old wise one states that all great political movements of history were born in prison. Sandwalker in that story, of course, does not know what history or political movements are. So we should save what that could mean for our final wrap up of the whole trilogy of novellas. But I do want to tease that I'm going to suggest that a story by John V. Marsh could be something like VRT's A Pilgrim's Progress or something along those lines.
0: And of course, there are the the French authors who we talked about in our recap episodes, the Marquis de Sade and Alexandre Dumas, these Enlightenment French figures who had quite a bit to say about time in prison.
1: And we see some engagement with those ideas in this story. We have this odd section about sexual fetishism um, from VRT, which might not be taken directly from 120 Days of Sodom, but I think Wolfe clearly has 120 Days of Sodom in mind when he's composing that, perhaps, which was another book that was written from prison. Dumas, I think, is very important in this sort of prison narrative. A lot of what we get, the banging on pipes, the communication between prisoners the being in prison for a reason that has nothing to do with anything other than being at the wrong place at the wrong time or offending the wrong type of person is ripped straight from The Count of Monte Cristo. And I do think that that's an important text to keep in mind as we ask the question in a few minutes of what VRT's final act is. Um, So, I do think Dumas in particular is is important because that reason for being in prison, the experience of being in prison, the desire for companionship, the being turned into an animal is something that Dumas kind of plays with. But it's also something, as we see these Kafkaesque elements in the story, that Kafka perfects as a writer, the being caught and imprisoned by an absurd system.
0: Something we're going to talk about in a few minutes is how this prison narrative plays off of the wilderness adventure story what Wolf is doing by juxtaposing these two types of narratives. Uh, before we get there, let's, let's talk a little bit about weird fiction, which I have to say was, I was surprised to see how much Wolf was drawing on the tradition of weird fiction here in VRT. It was something that hadn't jumped out to me, uh, when I first read this book 15 years ago, but it's very clear that San Qua has a very Gothic feel to it in both novellas, uh, in fifth head, uh, we're getting a story that is basically Frankenstein or the island of Dr. Moreau uh, as much as it is Jane Eyre. Here in VRT, we, we joked because we almost stumbled upon it accidentally how much Wolfe is alluding to Poe. We have inquisitions and prisons. We have crypts and corpses and cathedrals and bells. We also have the, the dark side of colonialism, uh, which is something we've talked about at great length uh, when we covered the post story, The Murders in the Room Morgue over on Elder Sign. And we've talked about all of that before. So something I do want to point out that we have not yet talked about is that the frame narrative of VRT is employing one of the characteristic techniques of weird fiction, which is the armchair investigation that leads to a dark discovery. The framing device that Wolf uses here in VRT is extraordinarily similar to the device that Lovecraft uses in The Call of Cthulhu, which also opens with someone sitting down to go through a box of random documents that will ultimately tell an unexpected and and perhaps unbelievable story. It's easy when you're reading VRT to lose sight of the fact that the story we're actually reading is the story of a guy reading pieces of paper and listening to audio tape in one room over the course of one evening. But that is what this is the story of. And we are, we are discovering with him some unpleasant truths about the world, which is precisely what this device is used for in weird fiction.
1: Right. The crime that he's investigating is not what he uncovers and that is the rug being pulled out from under you that is used in weird fiction all the time the folklorist in the woods or the folklorist of the local university who goes to investigate some strange whisperings on a farm in in, in you know new hampshire or maine or wherever and discovers that there're crab aliens <laughs> from outer <laughs> space right Th- this is all what is happening here and i think i think it's great that you point out that this is at least a gothic story it certainly is a gothic story this is a man being buried alive in the below the crypts of a church without anybody being interested in his life um and the only person who will ever know the truth about him is is only engaging in the problem for their own political gain very very dark stuff and this is all the hallmarks of gothic fiction and weird fiction. We have weird creatures. We have the ghoul bear, which is this carrion eater that has uh, characteristics of man in them, and all these odd animals. This is all stuff that we see used again, particularly in, in what's called like the new weird genre that Jeff Vandermeer and China Mielville and these other writers are are pushing. Uh, displayed in most recently in the movie Annihilation, this type of creature melding is characteristic of the new weird. And this was written, you know, in like 1972. Wolf is way ahead of the curve here and maybe, maybe missed it. Though this, I think, will outlive us all. I hope. Even the theme of
0: how we distinguish between animals and humans and. And what renders someone culpable of a crime? What renders someone a rational, moral agent? It's something that many weird fiction writers have real anxieties about. Poe, in particular, in The Murders in the Room Morgue, but it's also something that Lovecraft has a lot of anxiety about as well. And we see that being filtered into this story, too. The last thing I want to say about weird fiction before we talk about how these genres all work together is something that I have been sitting on for months since we were covering the first novella in this book when we were talking about the significance of the name Marsh when we first met Dr. Marsh back in the foyer of the Maison Duchenne. It just didn't occur to me when we were reading that novella or when we were when we were recording those episodes Marsh is the last name of the villains in Lovecraft's story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. It's spelled a little bit differently, but The Shadow Over Innsmouth is about the offspring of two different sentient species as a result of colonialism and how that doesn't make for a nice society in which to live. It's the exact plot of this book.
1: That's incredible. Yeah, I'm really glad he made that connection. I think Wolf is, once again, demonstrating his love for the genre and wanting to bring more people into the wire racks in the drugstore, so to speak, and and, and attract people to the things they miss by not reading genre fiction by the literary snob, so to speak, out there who don't recognize that the best of genre fiction is some of the best fiction that's ever written. And because it's written maybe quickly or in response to uh, an immediate social anxiety, can often tell us more about the type of world we live in than a great literary novel. It can sometimes be more revealing of the present moment than a thousand-page novel about somebody's experience in prison, so to speak. I just love what Wolf is doing here and the types of games he plays with genre, because it's, it's just absolutely awe-inspiring. And he hits upon great universal themes in his work as well.
0: VRT really stands out from the previous two novellas in this book, because it is weaving together three different genres and, and three different narratives, really. It is much more ambitious in its scope than the uh, Previous two novellas were. So I think that forces us to ask whether or not Wolf really succeeded in weaving those genres together. And what really is, and maybe another way of looking at it is, what's the benefit? What do we get from that? Or what does Wolf, what is Wolf doing with that?
1: I think Wolf succeeds beautifully here. I really do. I think he gives us everything we need to know to make sense of the past two. Novellas. I think Fifth Head is really self contained. I don't think we need VRT to make sense of Fifth Head. The way he reinforces the realities we encounter in Fifth Head, I think, is very important in our understanding of a story by John V. Marsh. But I think Wolf gives us everything in this story that we need to decode a story by John V. Marsh and understand what is at the heart of the issues Wolf is trying to get at in this trilogy of novellas. I think we have to save what those things are for the next episode. But I will just have to say that just in terms of VRT, Wolf pulls off this interplay of genres absolutely beautifully. He knows exactly what he's doing every step along the way. And for me, the payoff is massive For me, I I really love the
0: interplay here of the prison narrative with this wilderness adventure story. The juxtaposition of these two types of stories really reinforces the the themes here, of both of freedom and also animals and, and humans. Freedom, most obviously, that we are getting the story of VRT as he exists out in the wilderness or his quest out into the wilderness. And then that is contrasted with him being confined in a room that he can't even stand up in. Uh, the metaphor couldn't be deployed more clearly. Right, and I think it's actually but I also think that it's really crucial that Wolf uses this gothic or this weird fiction frame device to sew the two things up almost as a, as a way of saying that the the thing that brings together the the darkness of putting someone in a dungeon and the potential malevolence of the wilderness where Dr. Marsh just falls to his death. The the thing that can unite them is this sort of Lovecraftian fiction in which the the you know the underlying philosophy is that the universe does not care about us and nothing we do matters. I think that's a really brilliant uh, uh, device, a way to weave these stories together, but to give us then, but to use all of that to give us this emotive and really heartbreaking and gut-wrenching story about this adolescent boy who's just trying to escape abuse and in, and is almost falling victim to his own cleverness or his own desire to escape. But something we've left out of our discussion of the interplay of these three different genres is the fact that Wolf also is messing with time here, that he's giving us these narratives, not just spliced together, but spliced together out of order And something that occurred to me while going through this a second time, something that I thought might be a fun exercise that I have not actually done because it would be very time consuming, would be to separate these narratives and actually put them in their own chronological order. I thought about doing that as a way of, as as another way of looking at this text to see what insights might come out of that. But I did not do that. But this did lead me to the question of thinking about, for myself, which of these narratives is the story that I would actually read if it was if it existed only in that form on its own and in its chronological order, but I'm going to kick this question to you first, Brandon. And I guess really, maybe at its heart, it's just which of these narratives, these different genre stories here, was your favorite in VR team?
1: The prison narrative is my favorite of the three. I think it's just beautiful writing on Wolf's part. And when we get to some of the fun bits of this, and and you ask me what my favorite passage will be, it will be one of the sections of the prison narrative. I remember sitting down and reading, opening up the book and reading for the podcast to prepare, and just writing down a note that says, this is some of Wolf's best writing. I just think the prison narrative is absolutely stunning. And I don't need it to be in order because the creeping dread and madness that Wolf is able to put into this character and what's going on using little tricks like slippage of time. I have done this. I will do this from the beginning that we know his state of mind will be slipping and then watching it happen. And we're out of time as we're reading it, I think is just absolutely incredible. And there's just some great, great writing in the prison narrative.
0: Your answer is no surprise to me at all. This is the type of story that you love to read, but it is also the real mode that you write in. You really like to write about madness, and you are frequently writing about people who are trapped in either actual confined spaces or social circumstances or other types of systemic circumstances. So I anticipated that that would be your answer. And of course, I think anyone who knows me is going to automatically assume that My favorite narrative here was Dr. Marsh's St. Anne Journal, uh, at least until he starts hallucinating about VRT's sex life. That's where it starts to get a little too into madness for my taste.
1: Yeah, they could both have been eating those mushrooms that <laughs> VRT finds in the darkness.
0: Yeah, I think you just solved that question that we had a couple episodes ago. Uh, very much like Dr. Marsh, I also grew up reading about explorers, and I've always wanted to be one. Uh, in my own case, you know, this really involved reading about 19th century adventurers, uh, guys going out in search of lost civilizations, uh, but also way too many stories about Humans going to other planets in order to make new civilizations. I have had to reconcile myself to the fact that I was born either too late or too early, uh, but I am going to continue to dream about a life running the best cocktail bar on Mars. Uh, to me, Dr. March's St. Anne Journal beautifully combines this yearning to be both uh, a Victorian dandy and also a space explorer, and I just love it. And of course, as you as you say, Brandon Wolf's prose in The Prison Narrative is gorgeous and uh, visceral. Uh, it is as well in the St. Anne Journal. His nature writing is just breathtaking. And of course, as you have uh, presaged, there will be more on that in just a bit. But before we get to that, uh, I think we should uh, look ahead uh, and, and maybe do a little bit of our, and, and think about uh, think a little bit about some fan fiction that we might engage in. What do you think is going to become a VRT? This book ends on kind of a cliffhanger. We don't really know what his ultimate fate is going to be. What do you think is going to happen?
1: Something you said a few episodes ago really stuck with me about VRT being stuck in the middle of the hero's journey. At this point, he is underground. He is explicitly in hell. He is very near the end of the original quest that motivated him, if indeed his mother is the prisoner next door. We see him coming to terms with himself, overcoming his own weaknesses through this experience, And so what I hope will become a VRT is the completion of his hero's journey, that he rescues his mother from Saint-Croix. Maybe he's able to use Dr. Marsh's identity to go back to Earth and live a life away from the fascism and military power that seems to have corrupted the governments of this binary planet system. What I think will become a VRT... (laughs) is something a little more Kafka-esque, that he will continue to be a victim of this absurd system and never get out of it and go mad, as he has a propensity to do, stuck in between these prisoners, live the rest of his life as prisoner 143 without a kind French priest to rescue him and to give him the treasure map to be free. So that's what I hope... That's what I think. I want to ask you, Glenn. Who would you love to see like a standalone story about in this novella in VRT? What story do you want more of? We meet a pretty hilarious
0: cast of characters in this story, from members of the secret police, uh, interrogators, and such in Port Mimizon to uh, vagabonds and charlatans, and on Saint Anne. But I think the character that. I would most like to see in a spin off here is Dr. Hagsmith. And I'm envisioning a series of books about his adventures and his mishaps as a doctor and also as an amateur folklorist out here on the frontier. Sometimes he has to deal with alien contagions. Sometimes he's interviewing old ladies about their folk stories and discovering that the whole thing is really just a ruse to set him up with a granddaughter or something like that. And, you know, every once in a while, he runs afoul of the local criminal element. Uh, Really, I think what I've got in mind here is something like a a mashup of In Search Of and Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. It's going to be great, I promise. (laughs)
1: Well that's that's also my answer for that question as well. Oh, it, really? it has to be Dr. Hagsmith. Young Dr. Hagsmith comes to St. Ann. That's probably the name of the show. I don't know. Our listeners could give us a better title. But yeah, he's just walking around with the suitcase asking people about ABOs and healing the sick. I don't know. To me that seems like a great Great idea for a story or a series of stories.
0: Again, I have to ask why we are not working in television development.
1: (laughs) Because we can't write scripts. (laughs) That's That's (laughs) (laughs) fine.
0: All right. Last thing that we're going to do for this wrap up is uh, we're each going to, we've we've each picked a favorite passage from this story. Brandon, I'm going to let you go first. What's the passage from VRT that you just love the most?
1: So this is the passage where I was reading it and my note was just this Prison Diary is some of Wolf's best writing. It is uh, after the section break on page 218, and uh, it's two paragraphs. I'll read it here. I have been asleep and had all sorts of dreams and let my candle burn out. I must be more careful. That they gave me candles and matches this time is no guarantee that they will be replaced when the present supply is gone. Inventory. Eleven candles. Thirty-two matches, a hundred and four sheets of still unused paper, and this pen, which manufactures its ink by drawing moisture from the air, and with which a patient man, so minded, could paint black the four walls of his cell. Fortunately, I have never been a patient man. What did I dream of? The howling of beasts, the ringing of bells, women. When I can remember. What I have dreamed, I have always nearly dreamed of women, which I suppose makes me unusually blessed. The sounds of shuffling feet and my own execution, which I dreamed of as having taken place in a vast, deserted courtyard surrounded by colonnades. Five of the stalking robots used as guards in the prison camps above the city, which I have sometimes observed overseeing labor gangs at work on the roads were my executioners. A crisp command from invisible lips, blinding blue-white light from the lasers, myself falling, my hair and beard on fire. I just think that's amazing. I just, I have nothing more to say about it.
0: It is a gorgeous passage, and the, the slip from taking stock of the material things that are near him, the tangible world surrounding him, to his Imagination to his dream life uh, is just fantastic there that is a really a really awesome passage
1: yeah, the thing that jumps out to me there is the him knowing he 's talking to himself to asking a question to himself, this What did I dream of is a haunting question to me because that 's not something you need to ask yourself if you 're writing, and the stream of consciousness. The connection to Fifth Head, all of the things working together there, his sense of his condition, his fears. I just think it's amazing. Glenn, what was your favorite passage of this book?
0: Well, of course, mine has to come from Dr. Marsh's St. Anne Journal. Uh, We expressed some real concern, confusion, and hesitation about the character of Dr. Marsh and how much he was really appreciating the journey that he was on and how much maybe he was overlooking that. But there is this moment almost where he has almost a, an epiphany when he is standing alone at the first oasis they encounter in the back of beyond. That's the scene that really stands out for me. I'm just going to read this one sentence of it. In a few minutes, I was more utterly alone than it is ever given most of us born on earth to be with only the wind and the sun and the sighing of the great trees that trailed their roots in the murmuring water before me. Of course, I love this just as a a bit of descriptive writing and how it hits all of the senses, including the narrator's own introspective sense of self, But this also captures something that I love about going on solo backpacking trips, which is my favorite hobby. I have, in fact, been blessed to experience this more than once, in fact, more than a handful of times in my life. And and there is something about it that can really only be described as an epiphany, this sense of being utterly alone in the whole universe, of knowing that, that you are days from any road, that it has been a day, two days, three days, since you've even encountered someone else who's out walking around out here. It is such a stark contrast to what our daily lives are are like. Some of it is good in the sense of being free from the anxieties and the stresses and the pressures that deadlines imposed by other people at your work or your family you get to escape those. And and that's great. But there is also this terrifying element of it as well. And not just knowing that you're alone, and that if you get hurt, that there might not be anything to do. But you really start to feel this sense of smallness and the face of what the whole universe is. And I think that that is something that we'll want to think about again, in our next episode, our final wrap up episode, when we address who wrote and what is a story by John V. Marsh and its place in the novel.
1: Yeah, that is a a beautiful section of the story and and really an amazing experience if, if you're lucky enough to have it. We see that that experience for Dr. Marsh kind of softens him a little bit, opens him up to the possibilities of what it means to be in nature, though it doesn't really get him over any hurdles. I'm really glad you shared that because that, I really also love that Oasis scene, and it made me immediately want to go backpacking right now. Well, now that we're making
0: plans to go backpacking once we've put this book back on the shelf, I think that's going to do it for this
1: episode. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us, as always, on claytemplemedia.com, along with our other creative projects.
0: We know we've taken a minority stance on the question of whether VRT is an alien, and we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts about this over on the Clay Temple Forum. And if you're not already a patron, please check us out on Patreon, and you'll get access to our latest bonus show a discussion about the classic Twilight Zone episode Will a Real Martian Please Stand Up? Which, of course, is also about whether anyone is an alien pretending to be human. I think you'll find the parallels really f- exciting.
1: Well, we have three episodes left before we are finished with The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Next time, we're going to be wrapping up the entire novel. We'll tackle the puzzles and mysteries first, including whether or not there ever were any abos. After that, we'll have an episode to talk about the themes and about Wolf's writing craft. And we'll finish the whole series in another episode when Wolf Scholar and friend of Quay Temple Media, Mark Aramini, returns to the show. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.